Hi, I'm Jeffrey. Welcome back to Night Falls. Come, settle in for tonight's soothing bedtime story. As always, don't worry if you fall asleep before the end. You can drift off whenever you're ready. Come, warm your hands by the fireside. I find there's much to love about Don Quixote's quest for glory. And however misguided his attempts at it are, I've always rather enjoyed the knight's devotion to chivalry. I know Devani would be more than happy to clear her own path through the thicket and doesn't really need my jacket around her shoulders. But I hope that in each small act, I can show her how much she means to me. Before we begin, here's a quick word from our sponsors who make this free content possible. If you've been feeling overwhelmed with anxiety lately, try listening to a guided meditation on the Meditation for Anxiety podcast. Meditation is a proven natural way to help you calm down and dissolve stress so you can feel lighter and happier. So subscribe for free today to the Meditation for Anxiety podcast by searching for Meditation for Anxiety on your favorite podcast player. For the best way to fall asleep with Nightfalls, you can now become a premium supporter. Enjoy the entire back catalogue of Nightfalls classics, all with a rich, immersive and totally ad-free experience. If you love falling asleep to Nightfalls, Nightfalls Premium will elevate your sleep while helping to support myself and the team. We love creating Nightfalls, but without supporters, it wouldn't be possible. Join Nightfalls Premium today in just two taps on both Apple Podcasts or via the Supercast link found in the show notes for all other podcast players. Your sleep will thank you for it, and so will I. In a village of La Mancha, the name of which I have no desire to call to mind, there lived one of those gentlemen that kept a lance in the lance rack, an old buckler, a lean horse, and a greyhound for coursing. A pot of rather more beef than mutton, a salad on most nights, scraps on Saturdays, lentils on Fridays, and a pigeon or so extra on Sundays, made away with three quarters of his income. The rest of it went in a doublet of fine cloth, and velvet breeches and shoes to match for holidays. While on weekdays, he made a brave figure in his best homespun. He had in his house a housekeeper past forty, a niece under twenty, and a lad for the field and marketplace, who used to saddle the hack as well as handle the billhook. The age of this gentleman of ours was bordering on fifty, He was of a hardy habit, spare, gaunt featured, a very early riser and a great sportsman. 
they will have it his surname was Kixada or Kiseda. For here there is some difference of opinion among the authors who write on the subject. Although from reasonable conjectures, it seems plain that he was called Kuixana. You must know then that the above-named gentleman, whenever he was at leisure, which was mostly all the year round, gave himself up to reading books of chivalry with such ardour and avidity that he almost entirely neglected the pursuit of his field sports and even the management of his property. To such a pitch did his eagerness and infatuation go that he sold many an acre of tillage land to buy books of chivalry to read and brought home as many of them as he could get. But of all, there were none he liked so well as the famous Feliciano de Silva's composition, for their lucidity of style and complicated conceits were as pearls in his sight. Particularly when in his reading he came upon courtships and cartels, often finding passages like the reason of the unreason with which my reason is afflicted so weakens my reason that with reason I murmur at your beauty. Or again, the high heavens that of your divinity divinely fortify you with the stars, rendering you deserving of the desert your greatness deserves. Over conceits of this sort, the poor gentleman lost his wit and used to lie awake striving to understand them and worm the meaning out of them. What Aristotle himself could not have made out or extracted had he come to life again for that special purpose. He commended the author's way of ending his book with the promise of that interminable adventure. Many a time was he tempted to take up his pen and finish it properly as is there proposed, which no doubt he would have done and made a successful piece of work of it too, had not greater and more absorbing thoughts prevented him. Many an argument did he have with the curate of his village as to which had been the better knight, Palmerin of England or Amadis of Gaul. Master Nicholas, the village barber, however, used to say that neither of them came up to the knight of Phoebus, and that if there was any that could compare with him, it was Don Galor, the brother of Amadis of Gaul, because he had a spirit that was equal to every occasion, and was no finikin knight, nor lacrimose like his brother, while in the matter of valour he was not a wit behind him. In short, he became so absorbed in his books that he spent his nights from sunset to sunrise, and his days from dawn to dark, poring over them, and what with little sleep and much reading, his brains got so dry that he lost his wits. His fancy grew full of what he used to read about in his books, enchantments, quarrels, battles, challenges, wounds, wooings, loves, agonies, and all sorts of impossible nonsense. And it so possessed his mind that the whole fabric of invention and fancy he read of was true, that to him no history in the world had more reality in it. He used to say Sid Rui Diaz was a very good knight, but that he was not to be compared with the knight of the burning sword, who, with one backstroke, 
cut in half two fierce and monstrous giants. He thought more of Bernardo del Carpio, because at Roncesval he slew Roland in spite of enchantments, availing himself of the artifice of Hercules when he strangled Antaeus, the son of Terra, in his arms. He approved highly of the giant Morgante, because, although of the giant breed which is always arrogant and ill-conditioned, he alone was affable and well-bred. But above all, he admired Rinaldo of Montalban, especially when he saw him sallying forth from his castle and robbing everyone he met, and when, beyond the seas, he stole that image of Mahomet, which, as history says, was entirely of gold. To have a bout of kicking out that traitor of a Ganelon, he would have given his housekeeper and his niece into the bargain. In short, his wits being quite gone, he hit upon the strangest notion that ever madman in this world hit upon, and that was that he fancied it was right and requisite, as well for the support of his honour as for the service of his country, that he should make a knight-errant of himself. In this vision, his task would take the form of roaming the world over in full armour and on horseback in quest of adventures, and putting in practice himself all that he had read of as being the usual practices of knights-errant, righting every kind of wrong and exposing himself to peril and danger, from which, in the issue, he was to reap eternal renown and fame. Already, the poor man saw himself crowned by the might of his arm emperor of Trebizond at least, and so, led away by the intense enjoyment he found in those pleasant fancies, he set himself forthwith to put his scheme into execution. The first thing he did was to clean up some armour that had belonged to his great-grandfather and had been for ages lying forgotten in a corner eaten with rust and covered with mildew. He scoured and polished it as best he could, but he perceived one great defect in it, that it had no closed helmet, nothing but a simple morion. This deficiency, however, his ingenuity supplied, for he contrived a kind of half-helmet of pasteboard, which, fitted on to the morion, looked like a whole one. It is true that, in order to see if it was strong and fit to stand a cut, he drew his sword and gave it a couple of slashes, the first of which undid an instant what had taken him a week to do. The ease with which he had knocked it to pieces disconcerted him somewhat, and, to guard against that danger, he set to work again, fixing bars of iron on the inside until he was satisfied with its strength, and then, not caring to try any more experiments with it, he passed it and adopted it as a helmet of the most perfect construction. He next proceeded to inspect his horse. Four days he spent in thinking what name to give him, because, as he said to himself, it was not right that a horse belonging to a knight so famous, and one with such merits of his own, should be without some distinctive name and he strove to adapt it so as to indicate what he had been before belonging to a knight-errant, and what he then was. For it was only reasonable that, his master taking a new character, he should take a new name, and that it should be a distinguished 
and full-sounding one, befitting the new order and calling he was about to follow. And so, after having composed, struck out, rejected, added to, unmade and remade a multitude of names out of his memory and fancy, he decided upon calling him Rocinante. He thought the moniker to be lofty, sonorous, and significant of his condition as a hack before he became what he now was, the first and foremost of all the hacks in the world. Having got a name for his horse so much to his taste, he was anxious to get one for himself, and he was eight days more pondering over this point, till he at last made up his mind to call himself Don Quixote, whence, as has already been said, the authors of this voracious history have inferred that his name must have been beyond a doubt Quixada, and not Quesada, as others would have it. Recollecting, however, that the valiant Amadis was not content to call himself curtly Amadis, and nothing more, but added the name of his kingdom and country to make it famous, and call himself Amadis of Gaul. He, like a good knight, resolved to add on the name of his. Thus did he style himself Don Quixote of La Mancha, whereby he considered he described accurately his origin and country, and did honour to it in taking his surname from it. So then, his armour being furbished, his morion turned into a helmet, his tired old horse christened, and he himself confirmed, he came to the conclusion that nothing more was needed now but to look out for a lady to be in love with. For a knight-errant without love was like a tree without leaves or fruit, or a body without a soul. As he said to himself, If for all my sins, or by my good fortune, I come across some giant hereabouts, common occurrence with knight-errants, and overthrow him in one onslaught, or cleave him asunder to the waist, or, in short, vanquish and subdue him, will it not be well to have someone I may send him to as a present, that he may come in and fall on his knees before my sweet lady, and in a humble, submissive voice say, I am the giant of Caraculiambro, lord of the island of Malendrania, vanquished in single combat by the never-sufficiently extolled knight Don Quixote of La Mancha, who has commanded me to present myself before your grace, that your highness dispose of me at your pleasure. Oh, how our good gentleman enjoyed the delivery of this speech, especially when he had thought of someone to call his lady. There was, so the story goes, in a village near his own, a very good-looking farm girl, with whom he had been at one time in love, though, so far as is known, she never knew it, nor gave a thought to the matter. Her name was Aldonza Lorenzo, and upon her he thought fit to confer the title of Lady of His Thoughts, and after some search for a name which should not be out of harmony with her own, and should suggest and indicate that of a princess and great lady, he decided upon calling her Dulcinea del Toboso, she being of El Toboso, a name, to his mind, musical, uncommon, and significant, like all those he had already bestowed upon himself and the things belonging to him. 
these preliminaries settled, he did not care to put off any longer the execution of his design. Urged onto it by the thought of all the world was losing by his delay, seeing what wrongs he had intended to right, grievances to redress, injustices to repair, abuses to remove, and duties to discharge. So, without giving notice of his intention to anyone, and without anybody seeing him, one morning before the dawning of the hottest day of July, he donned his suit of armour, mounted Rocinante with his patched-up helmet on, braced his buckler, took his lance, and, by the back door of the yard, sallied forth upon the plain in the highest contentment and satisfaction at seeing with what ease he had made a beginning with his grand purpose. But scarcely did he find himself upon the open plain when a terrible thought struck him, one all but enough to make him abandon the enterprise at the very outset. It occurred to him that he had not been dubbed a knight, and that according to the law of chivalry, he neither could nor ought to bear arms against any knight. Besides, even if he had been, still he ought, as a novice knight, to wear white armour, without a device upon the shield, until by his prowess he had earned one. These reflections made him waver in his purpose. But his craze being stronger than any reasoning, he made up his mind to have himself dubbed a knight by the first one he came across, following the example of others in the same case, as he had read in the books that brought him to this pass. As for white armour, he resolved, on the first opportunity, to scour his until it was whiter than an ermine. And so comforting himself, he pursued his way, taking that which his horse chose, for in this he believed lay the essence of adventures. Thus, setting out, our new-fledged adventurer paced along, talking to himself and saying, Who knows but that in time to come, when the voracious history of my famous deeds is made known, the sage who writes it, when he has to set forth my first sallies in the early morning, will do it after this fashion. Happy the age, happy the time, he continued, in which shall be made known my deeds of fame, worthy to be moulded in brass, carved in marble, limbed in pictures, for a memorial forever. And thou, O sage magician, whoever thou art, to whom it shall fall to be the chronicler of this wondrous history, forget not, I entreat thee, my good Rocinante, the constant companion of my ways and wanderings. Presently he broke out again, as if he were love-stricken in earnest. O oh, Princess Dulcinea, lady of this captive heart, a grievous wrong hast thou done me to drive me forth with scorn, and with inexorable obduracy banish me from the presence of thy beauty. O oh, lady, deign to hold in remembrance this heart, thy vassal, that thus in anguish pines for love of thee. So he went on, stringing together these and other absurdities, all in the style of those his books had taught him, imitating their language as well as he could. And all the while he rode so slowly, and the sun mounted so rapidly, and with such fervour, 
that it was enough to melt his brains, if he had any. Nearly all day he travelled without any remarkable happening to him, at which he was in despair, for he was anxious to encounter someone at once upon whom to try the might of his strong arm. Writers there are who say the first adventure he met with was that of Puerto Lapice. Others say it was that of the windmills, but what I have ascertained on this point, and what I have found written in the Annals of La Mancha, is that he was on the road all day, and towards nightfall his horse and he found themselves dead tired and hungry, when, looking all around to see if he could discover any castle or shepherd's shanty where he might refresh himself and relieve his sore wants, he perceived not far out of his road an inn, which was as welcome as a star guiding him to the portals of his redemption. And, quickening his pace, he reached it just as night was setting in. At the door were standing two young women, girls of the district, as they call them, on their way to Seville with some carriers who had chanced to halt that night at the inn. And as everything he saw or imagined seemed to him to be after the fashion of what he read of, the moment he saw the inn, he pictured it to himself as a castle with its four turrets and pinnacles of shining silver, not forgetting the drawbridge and moat and all the belongings usually ascribed to castles of the sort. To this inn, which to him seemed a castle, he advanced, and at a short distance from it, he checked Rocinante, hoping that some peasant boy would show himself upon the battlements, and by sound of trumpet, give notice that a knight was approaching the castle. But seeing that, they were slow about it, and that Rocinante was in a hurry to reach the stable, he made for the inn door, and perceived the two damsels who were standing there, and who seemed to him to be two fair maidens, or lovely ladies, taking their ease at the castle gate. At this moment, it so happened that a swineherd, who was going through the stubbles collecting a drove of pigs, gave a blast of his horn to bring them together, and forthwith it seemed to Don Quixote to be what he was expecting, the signal of some peasant boy announcing his arrival. With prodigious satisfaction, he rode up to the inn and to the ladies, who, seeing a man of this sort approaching in full armour and with lance and buckler, were turning in dismay into the inn, when Don Quixote guessing their fear by their flight, raised his pasteboard visor, disclosed his dry, dusty visage, and with courteous bearing and gentle voice addressed them. Your ladyships need not fly or fear any rudeness, for that it belongs not to the order of knighthood which I profess to offer to anyone, much less to high-born maidens, as your appearance proclaims you to be. The girls were looking at him, and straining their eyes to make out the features which the clumsy visor obscured, but when they heard themselves called maidens, a thing so much out of their line, they could not restrain their laughter, which made Don Quixote wax indignant and say, Modesty becomes the fair, and moreover laughter that has little cause is great silliness. 
this, however, I say not to distress you, for my desire is none other than to serve you. The incomprehensible language and the unpromising looks of our cavalier only increased the lady's laughter, and at that moment the landlord had not come out, who was a very peaceful man. He, seeing this figure clad in armour that did not match any more than his saddle, bridle, lance, buckler, or corselet, was not at all indisposed to join the damsels in their manifestations of amusement. But, in truth, standing in awe of such a complicated armament, he thought it best to speak him fairly. So he said, Signor Caballero, if your worship wants lodging, facing the bed, for there is not one in the inn, there is plenty of everything else here. Don Quixote, observing the respectful bearing of the alcade in the fortress, for so innkeeper and inn seemed in his eyes, made answer, Sir Castellan, for me anything will suffice, for my armour is my only wear, my only rest the fray. The host fancied he called himself Castellan, because he took him for a worthy of Castile, though he was in fact an Andalusian, and one from the strand of San Lusar, as crafty a thief as Cacus, and as full of tricks as a student or a page. In that case, said he, your bed is on the flinty rock, you sleep to watch away, and if so, you may dismount and safely reckon upon any quantity of sleepiness under this roof for a twelve months, not to say for a single night. So saying, he advanced to hold the stirrup of Don Quixote, who got down with great difficulty and exertion, for he had not broken his fast all day, and then he charged the host to take great care of his horse, as he was the best thing that ever ate bread in this world. The landlord eyed him over, but did not find him as good as Don Quixote said, nor even half as good, and putting him up in the stable, he returned to see what might be wanted by his guest, whom the damsels, who had by this time made their peace with him, were now relieving of his armour. They had taken off his breastplate and backpiece, but they neither knew nor saw how to open his gorget or remove his makeshift helmet, for he had fastened it with green ribbons, which, as there was no untying the knots, required to be cut. This, however, he would not by any means consent to, so he remained all the evening with his helmet on, the drollest and oddest figure that can be imagined, and while they were removing his armour, taking the baggages who were about it for ladies of high degree belonging to the castle, he said to them with great sprightliness, Oh, never surely was there knight so served by hand of dame, as served was he, Don Quixote height, when from his town he came, with maidens waiting on himself, princesses on his horse, all Brocinante for that, lady's mine, is my horse's name, and Don Quixote of La Mancha is my own for though I had no intention of declaring myself until my achievements in your service and honour had made me known. The necessity of adapting that old ballad of Lancelot to the present occasion has given you the knowledge of my name altogether prematurely. A time, however, will come for your ladyships to command and me to obey, and then the might of my arm will show my desire to serve you. The girls, who were not used to hearing rhetoric of this sort, 
had nothing to say in reply. They only asked him if he wanted anything to eat. I would gladly eat a bit of something, said Don Quixote, for I feel it would come very seasonably. The day happened to be a Friday, and in the whole inn there was nothing but some pieces of the fish they call in Castile abadejo, in Andalusia bacalao, and in some places curadillo, and in others troutlet. So they asked him if he thought he could eat troutlet, for there was no other fish to give him. If there be troutlets enough, said Don Quixote, they will be the same thing as a trout, for it is all one to me whether I am given eight reels in small change or a piece of eight. Moreover, it may be that these troutlets are like veal, which is better than beef or kid, which is better than goat. But whatever it be, let it come quickly, for the burden and pressure of arms cannot be borne without support to the inside. They laid a table for him at the door of the inn for the sake of the air, and the host brought him a portion of ill-soaked and worse-cooked stockfish and a piece of bread as black and mouldy as his armour. But a laughable sight it was to see him eating, for, having his helmet on and the beaver up, he could not, with his own hands, put anything into his mouth unless someone else placed it there, and this service one of the ladies rendered him. But to give him anything to drink was impossible, or would have been so had not the landlord bored a reed, and, putting one end in his mouth, poured the wine into him through the other, all which he bore with patience rather than sever the ribbons of his helmet. While this was going on, there came up to the inn a sow-gelder, who, as he approached, sounded his reed-pipe four or five times, and thereby completely convinced Don Quixote that he was in some famous castle, and that they were regaling him with music, and that the stockfish was trout, the bread the whitest, the wenches ladies, and the landlord the castellan of the castle. And consequently, he held that his enterprise and sally had been to some purpose. But still, it distressed him to think he had not been dubbed a knight, for it was plain to him he could not lawfully engage in any adventure without receiving the order of knighthood. <laughs>